Everybody gets a piece, we're going mainstream. Everybody's gonna eat, we're going mainstream. All my family is singing. See you on mainstream, we're going mainstream. Wall Street to Melrose Avenue. We're going mainstream. Venture capitalists to athletes to creators. Today, we had our first LATAM guest on the Alco's Mainstream podcast, and it was a very special one. Bitso, LATAM's leading crypto exchange, is fresh off of raising a $250 million round led by Tiger, months after raising a $62 million round led by QED and Kazek, and has been minted as one of LATAM's newest unicorns. We had Bitso's co-founder and CEO, Daniel Vogel, on to talk about what it has been like to build the leading fintech company in the region and provide access to investments and financial services. Daniel is an early crypto pioneer and a thought leader in the space. He became intrigued by the idea of Bitcoin well before many other people had heard of it and really thought of crypto as a way to unlock monetary freedom and access to financial services for the underserved. After founding the Bitcoin Club at Harvard in 2013 while he was doing his MBA, Daniel founded Bitso along with Pablo Gonzalez and Ben Peters soon after he left Harvard Square. In Bitso, Daniel and his co-founders Pablo and Ben have created the on-ramp for financial services to many customers in Mexico and across LATAM. As Daniel said in a recent TechCrunch interview, the growth of the crypto ecosystem in LATAM has been nothing short of remarkable. It took Bitso six years to get their first million clients. And over the course of 2020, Bitso surpassed the 2 million client mark. They've also doubled their assets on the platform and their transaction volume during the first quarter of 2021 exceeded transaction volume for the entirety of 2020. It's clear that Daniel has a passion for building out the crypto economy and for making a difference in people's lives. So much so that Bitso has made their tagline, hashtag make crypto useful. This was such a fun conversation. We could have gone on for hours. We discussed a number of things, including Daniel's roots in crypto, the origins of Bitso, how Bitso has become an on-ramp for financial services for many consumers across LATAM, the meaning behind Bitso's slogan, make crypto useful, and how religion and community play such a unique role in crypto. Thanks, Daniel, for coming on the Alco's Mainstream Podcast. We hope you enjoy this episode. We're going mainstream. Daniel, welcome to the Alco's Mainstream Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. Excited to be here. Great. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, back in Mexico City and uh, excited to be building Bitso, continuing to build up this company. Yeah, well, you've had you've had quite, quite the journey. Uh, and your journey to crypto actually goes back very far. So it sounds like... Your roots in crypto were actually back in 2013 and when you were at Harvard. So we'd love to just hear your, your background and your story of how you got to, to Bitso from really wherever you want to start. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure your story started well before, well before Bitcoin in 2013 as well. <laughs> so I'm originally from Mexico. I was born and raised in Mexico City, and then I went to college to the States. I studied computer systems, engineering, and economics. And, and I, I guess you can start seeing sort of why, why I was very interested in, in Bitcoin. Um, after college, I went to live in San Francisco and a really good friend of mine from Venezuela who lived across the street from me told me about Bitcoin. And I, I, I don't know exactly when this was, but it was definitely before 2013 because I, um, I was basically like having drinks with him uh, at his apartment. And, and he was like, you should look this thing up. I think you'll, you'll find it interesting. And I remember so well, I went back home probably at around 2 a.m. in the morning, and I just went back to my computer, opened the tab, and just looked for Bitcoins so that I wouldn't remember, so that I wouldn't forget. And then the next thing I know, 
Um, it's like 7 a.m. in the morning, the sun's coming out, and I just spent the whole night reading about this thing. At, at first, it was just like so much skepticism about this thing. Like, it can't be like, what does it mean for there to be like a currency? Don't governments, aren't they the ones who do currency? Like, how? what's a digital currency? Like, and, and having studied both economics and computer systems engineering, I was like, this is so neat. Like, I think I just got hooked. Like, after the initial skepticism, I was like, this is actually super interesting and kind of genius. And I was working at this company and um, people started calling me the Bitcoin guy. Okay? And I remember the first time Bitcoin hit $50, people would tell me like, you need to sell that. Like, you're crazy. Like, this is just some, this is just such, it's like, you know, it's like tulip mania uh, over, all over again. And um, anyways, then I went to I went to business school and 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 when I went to business school, I would talk to Bitcoin about anyone who would listen. And so I, I chatted about Bitcoin to friends, family, like you know, people like my professors, like even the administrators. I remember I remember emailing the dean of the school and telling the dean like you know we should have Bitcoin as a like a course and maybe even have an ATM of Bitcoin. And he was like, uh, I don't know about that. But anyways, um, a, a friend of mine who's also from Mexico went back home for Christmas and his cousin uh, talked to him about Bitcoin. And he was like, this is really odd. The only other person I know that doesn't shout about Bitcoin is this other Mexican guy that I'm studying with. And so he put us in touch. And so Pablo, who's one of the one of Bitso's co-founders, he was living in Vancouver and, and dreaming of like going back to Mexico to start this company. And, um, and, and, and basically, like I started to chat with, with him and, uh, and, and the other Bitso co-founder, Ben. And, uh, and they were like, yeah, we're moving to Mexico. We're going to start this Bitcoin exchange and Bitcoin is going to be the future. And I was just so amazed. I was like, this is awesome. Like there are other people who think that Bitcoin is like an, an interesting thing to dedicate your life to. And I wanted to get involved. I wanted to help them. And uh, and then we, we kept chatting. And then at some point, it sort of like made sense uh, for me to join them. And uh, and so then that's how that's that's basically the foundings of, of, of the company. That's fascinating. What about crypto and Bitcoin when you first heard about it and thought about it? What what was it that really got to you? Because I know you have at Bitso, you have a hashtag, make crypto useful. So were, were there certain aspects of crypto that really excited you when you first thought about it? When I started getting into it, the, the crypto wasn't the word. It was just Bitcoin, right? Like there, there, there really wasn't like the Cambrian explosion of crypto assets that we've seen today. And, um, and, and look, I, I, I grew up in... Um, in a fairly um, religious context, and I, I go to like I, I didn't go to like a like a religious school, but I would go to like Catholic school on Wednesdays. And when I when I turn about thirteen, uh, like in science at school, they taught us about sort of like the theory of evolution. And for me, it was like this kind of like very interesting moment in my life where like something that I had always taken for granted, which was sort of creationism, was suddenly challenged by these other different theory. And, and it was just a super interesting moment in my life where I realized that like, you know, some of these things that you may be very close to and you may have never questioned, um, some other people may question them. 
And so for me, when I started reading about Bitcoin, it was sort of similar. It was like, wait, what is this concept of what is money? Like, how, I've never, I've been given money to use around and spend around and I'm earning it right now. Like I, I go to work to earn this thing and then I spend it and different countries have different money. And, and I was like, I never really understood like how, how money was created or why it exi- Like I, under, I, I knew why it existed, you know, as a unit of account, as a medium of exchange, as a store of value. But I, but I was like, why do central banks get the chance to like create this and manage this? And, and is that correct? And I have never questioned myself. And it was sort of like back to when I was 13 and I was just obsessed about learning everything about you know, the theory of evolution and, and Darwinism. I just wanted to learn. I just wanted to see this other perspective, this other side of the coin. And here I was doing the same. It was like, this can be like very interesting. And I had friends, like I told you, the guy who, who told me about this was a guy from Venezuela. Venezuela has a very difficult context when it comes to sort of like the monetary policy of, of, of Venezuela. I had friends from Argentina and I'd heard firsthand about the stories of like their families losing their wealth like overnight over like, you know, crazy inflation, crazy monetary policies, you know, government controls, call it whatever you want. And I was like, this is so interesting. Like Bitcoin creates this sort of like immutable system where everyone understands the rules. And if you want to play in this system, you need to abide by the rules, but no one can change the rules under you easily. And I just thought that was super interesting. One of the reasons that led me to like really want to build a career in this space was when I was working in San Francisco, I always enjoyed working late into the nights. And usually I would work past most other folks. And the janitor in the, in the office was a Mexican guy, Julio. And one day he asked me for money. One day he came by and said, hey, Daniel, would you mind if I, you know, I hate asking you, but would you have 200 bucks? Um, and I was like, Julio, I've known you for a long time and you've never asked me money for money. Is everything okay? And he told me like, look, I, my, my daughter needs school utensils and, uh, and she's in Mexico and I need to send her a remittance. Um, and I usually save up to save remittance. And this is sort of like an off schedule, um, uh, you, you know, cash need that, that my family has. And if I don't send them like, a, like 200 bucks, the transaction costs are so high, like I would much rather have someone lend me the money and then I repay them next week when I get paid. And I was like, wow, I've been living at this point in the US for, I don't know, half a decade, maybe a little bit more. And, I, and I'd heard of remittances, but I never knew how hard they were on these individuals. And you know, these are like some of the har- hardest working Mexicans. They can't find the right economic situation at home and they leave their families, go to a place where they don't speak the language, don't know anyone, don't know the culture. And they go and work uh, to send money back home. And I was like, and we charge them like a stupid amount of money. And so when I was looking at Bitcoin, I was like, oh, I wonder if this can fix that as well. And so this whole thing about like making crypto useful is basically like a recognition that investing in crypto assets is super interesting. And a lot of people love doing that. But we really believe that the underlying technology, now I'm speaking broadly about crypto because the the space has grown so much, but the underlying value proposition of the technology is one where like, we really think that a lot of things are gonna get rewritten. A lot of financial services are gonna get rewritten on on top of these sort of like open uh, standards with open source uh, code. And there's gonna be just so much innovation and we're already seeing that. And, and, And we're super excited about like, getting all of that into the hands of people so that people can really benefit firsthand from the technology. And so 
that's that's why make crypto useful is one of our slogans and that's why aside from all of the trading bits we, we're just like huge fans of the value proposition of the technology and what it could mean for society and and and, and that's why we're you know building this company out well do you think that your experience living in Latin America, you mentioned your Venezuelan friend, you mentioned Julio, who's doing remittances back home. Do you think that those experiences and also living in LATAM, where kind of people's relationship with money and with money that is generally tied to a government uh, is a little bit different maybe than in other regions of the world in certain cases, has that kind of informed your view on how to build out Bitso and maybe doing it differently than just creating an exchange? A hundred percent. I mean, look, if you look at the FX rate between any Latin American currency and the US dollar and you zoom out, what you'll see is massive depreciation. What that means is that like, you know, if you're earning in local currency in LATAM, you're basically like losing um, purchasing power over time, you know, against the US dollar. And so like, you're sort of like stuck in this situation where if you don't live that firsthand, like when I went to the United States for college, the exchange rate is wildly different than what it is today, right? When you when you sort of like live these things firsthand, when you hear the story of like, you know, your Venezuelan friend escaping and, their, and his family or, or their families, because there are multiple ones, escaping Venezuela because of like an oppressive regime, it, it becomes very real, right? Like. It's not this thing that you read about in the news. It's not this thing that you like study in a textbook or in a class. It's like your buddy who's telling you like, we have to run away and like, or they seized our assets or they did this or they did that. And, and you, and it just naturally gives you a slightly different way to look at the world. And, and it's kind of a shame, right? Like my preference would be that none of those folks have to like leave their countries or suffer like these devaluations. That would be my preference. If I could choose a world where there's no oppressive regimes, where there's not, where people aren't losing against like hyperinflation or bad monetary policy versus a world with Bitcoin, I would definitely choose a world where these things don't exist. I can't do that because I just don't have control over that. But I do have control over building a world where Bitcoin or cryptocurrency is more, more like, a possibility. It's an alternative for individuals. And so that's hugely motivating. And so when we when we think about a bunch of the stuff that we're building at Bitso, like, of course, you have to think about of the reality of the region. And also you get excited about the potential that the technology has and the relevancy of the technology or, or, or of these assets in the region. No? So, so, it's, so, so it definitely gives you like a slightly different angle. When I was at business school and I started with the Bitcoin Club, there was, I was met with so much skepticism, right? And well, what did people say to you? Well, no, this is crazy. Like money needs to be printed by governments. Like this is this is Ponzi scheme. Like any criticism that you've heard today, like I got that from everyone. My professors would tell me like, I'm crazy. Why are you doing this? This is like go and work at Amazon or Google or Facebook and be like a, a PM. You have like the technical side and now you have an MBA. It's a great combination. Like crypto is just too, too crazy. Maybe it's illegal, etc. But But for me, it was like these people don't understand that there's like a real need for, for alternatives like this one. Today, we're in a period of a lot of exuberance on the crypto space and that's super exciting. And it's like vindicating, you know, when you're like, ah, oh, you know, and people... 
Like you get emails from friends, professors, etc., who tell you like, oh, you were right with this with this crypto stuff, and I wish I would have listened or whatever. But but it's but in hindsight, everything's twenty twenty, right? Like the story could have been very different. But the reality is that like a lot of people actually rely on crypto for day to day stuff in a lot of places in the world, and Latam is like one prime example of that. We got freelancers who get paid in stable coins and like keep their stable coins in US dollars because they don't want local currency, but they have the ability to convert that to, cur- to local currency when they need to pay rent or pay for their credit cards or expenses or whatever. Last year, there were $40 billion of remittances from the US to Mexico, about 3%, a little bit over 3% of that, over $1.2 billion traveled via crypto rails, obviously with like, you know, the problematic of COVID, et cetera. Like a, a lot of people have started to think about digitizing their businesses and a lot of them have turned into crypto as like an interesting way to continue to process payments, to process payments internationally. And there's just so much that's getting built out, you know, it's, but it's taking a long time. It's, it's also been a lot of work. And so it didn't happen overnight and it took a lot of effort, but it's, but it's definitely very exciting to see this. And I'm just convinced, like, we're still in the first inning. Like, I think there's just so much that still needs to get built out. Well, you mentioned we're still in the first inning. And and one thing that I think we've both seen, particularly in the LATAM ecosystem in the fintech space, is that many people seem to want demand for investments, right? You see retail brokerage start to explode in places like Mexico and Brazil, Brazil over the last 10 years or so, in large part due to to, to drop in interest rates. So people are looking for ways to earn yield. How do you think about like this being the first inning? And I mean, you've had, you have over 2 million users. Like you clearly have people who want to invest into assets that will generate returns, right? Maybe volatile, but will also generate returns. So Walk us through, for, for, especially for those who aren't as familiar with the LATAM investing ecosystem on the on the consumer or retail side. Walk, walk us through that because there's, I think, Mexico had three hundred and sixty four thousand brokerage accounts with the largest incumbent. Three hundred and sixty four thousand. Coinbase has fifty six million brokerage accounts when they went IPO. So we'd love for you to kind of walk us through, kind of what this really means to be in the first inning of investing into assets in in Latin America. So one of the things that I'm like very, very proud of is that we were one of the pioneers of online accounts, uh, just like in the country, just just rethinking the model, right? Like maybe I don't need a physical presence. Maybe I don't need like, and, and the stock brokerage, like the stock brokers were like stuck in this world of like, no, but we serve these like super sophisticated clients and they want to get like personalized attention and they like to come to, to a place to chat about this or for us to go and pitch them ideas for investment and like, yeah, sure. Okay. You know, the, but, but how many families are you like, how many customers are you going to get that have, you know, over $2 million that they could like invest until some sort of like strategy or whatever. And the number is very reduced. And that's why, you know, the number that you were quoting, the, the largest stock brokerage in the country had, you know, less than 400,000 accounts. And, and so one of the things that we're like very, very proud of at Bitso is like we basically like said, we don't care. We'll take you on as a customer if you want to put 50 cents or if you want to put in a million dollars. Like we'll, we'll try to build a product that's agnostic. If you want to do more, there's going to be like more KYC, AML requirements, more due diligence, etc. But like I want to be able to serve digitally these types of customers. And that was just fundamentally different. And 
Um, and so I think a lot of the advances that we've had have, don't, don't even have to do like, obviously crypto is like a super interesting asset and it's grabbed the attention of a young, uh, of, of like our, our customers school, skew very young and, and that's been amazing. But like, I just, places like Latam, they're, they're just right. To, to just see tech disruption. Cell phone penetration, smartphone penetration going up, internet penetration going up with smartphone penetration. Younger generations are starting to use technology for their everyday lives. And you're basically like creating a huge market, like a huge nascent market has, has sort of like been created through the use of smartphones. And then it's a matter of like, how can we serve them? When I think that we're on the first inning in crypto, it's because like, if you look at the region, if you look at, let's just say Mexico. Um, Mexico has 120 some million people that live here. And there's only about 30 some million bank accounts in the country. So you're talking about like tens of millions of people who are just shut out from the banking system, like from the financial services sector, just completely shut out. And um, they sometimes it's because there's not a branch nearby. And so it's kind of hard, like, justify walking hours or, or traveling for hours to like open a bank account. They get discriminated against. People are like, oh, this person doesn't look like someone who's gonna be a very profitable customer, so I'm gonna discriminate against them. Sometimes it's just like, no, I'm not interested in serving you, like whatever. Fees are super high. Like people get charged. Here's a very neat story. So there's, there's, a, there's a lady that comes in and cleans our apartment a few times a week. And, um, and I pay her with Bitso, because in Bitso you get the ability to do peer-to-peer -peer transfers uh, in, in, in local currency. And so I was paying her pesos and just sending her pesos. And, um, and I don't think she even knew that I like worked at Bitso, but she, she was like, oh, this is kind of cool. Like, it's super fast. And, and then she's like, oh, interesting. Like, um, like, do I get charged by looking at my balance? And I was like, no, of course you don't get charged. And it's like, well, you, you laugh, but like my bank charges me for that. My bank charges me 50 cents of a dollar just to check how much money I have in my account. I was like, that's insane, right? And then I was like, and then, and then she saw through the app that you could convert your pesos to like stable coins. And so in dollars. And so she's like, I can buy dollars through this thing? And I was like, yeah, you can. She's like, that's cool. I want to I want to start saving in dollars. I was like, great. And so she started like turning a little bit of her pesos into dollars, like 20% or 10, between 10 and 20% of what I was paying her. She was just moving it off of the dollars and was creating like her, her, her little like piggy bank in dollars in the BitSwap. And then at some point I was like, oh, I'm gonna hook her up with like an interest bearing account on dollars, you know, uh, on, 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 on stable coins. And so I, I sent her up with one of these like interest bearing accounts on DeFi and DeFi for your audience is like this whole concept of decentralized finance where you get to build financial mm -hmm. products on top of blockchains. And so I, I started like, I showed her how she could move money from her Bitso account to, to her savings account in DeFi. And so she was doing that regularly, you know? And then one day she comes to me and says, is this legal? And I'm like, what do you mean? Like, of course it's legal, but why are you worried about it? She's like, because my balance is going up. And I was like, yeah, that's the whole point of a savings account. It's like, you're, 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 you're like, and she's like, what do you mean? It's like, well, well, like you told me that you wanted to save, no? And, and she's like, yeah, I was like, and when do you need that money? She's like, I don't need it. Like, I'm not gonna use it for a long time. I just wanna start building like some savings. And I was like, yeah, so that's amazing. And so basically what we've done is we've put it in an account 
And there's people who want the money today. They need the money. And so they want to borrow against your dollars and they and or they want to borrow your dollars and they want to put it to use and they're willing to pay interest and they're willing to pay interest because they need the money today and so they're willing to pay for that and so you're getting paid the interest that these people are paying for the loan for getting for having gotten that money in advance and she's like i've never seen this and so it's just amazing like this is one of the amazing things about building in this space it's just like we we're seeing like we're giving people access to financial services that like they've never ever dreamt of like no bank account in mexico gives anyone that's investing you know less than i don't know how i don't know what the lower limit is but definitely not someone like this lady who's probably you know her her account is probably today is probably in the order of like you know about a thousand dollars she has in there and uh and she's making interest off of that and she's like super happy it, seeing her balance go up and she's like i didn't know that this was possible like She's used to a world where checking her balance costs you money. So, so it's just like fundamentally different. And so when I say we're in the first inning, like I think like this whole world is going to get reinvented on top of crypto. And there's such an amazing opportunity to bring these products and services to these folks in, in a manner that, that just completely disrupts the existing system. Well, and even more so in economies where people are un or underbanked. I mean, I think you're you're shining a light on so many things here about Mexico and, and broadly many LATAM countries when it comes to kind of provision of financial services to the end consumer, which is, you know, there's a lack of digitalization. There's a cash-based economy. There's excessive charges and fees, right? So all of these things are things that you are now through your platform or your medium of exchange, your platform that enables people to save money, store value, right? And then transfer money from one person to another. I mean, you've kind of created this, I, I call it an on-ramp here at Alco's Mainstream. Adam Draper, who's been on and was an early investor in Coinbase, calls it a gateway. So like, you're really kind of bridging that gap between traditional financial services, even for those for those who are served, but also for those who are underserved, and the new world of decentralized finance and crypto. So how do you think about bridging those two worlds, particularly when you're dealing with a consumer who has either been so woefully underserved or completely unserved at all? Education is a, is a huge key component of what we're doing at Bitsu. No? And interestingly, like most of our growth happens mouth to mouth. And so for us, it's very important that our customers are extremely happy. So they tell their customers and show their customers how this works. And our biggest, like our biggest engine of growth are our happy customers. And so um, that doesn't mean that we don't invest in education. We go to schools, we go to all sorts of seminars. I mean, this podcast itself is, is education. No? And so we love spending time on education because we think the world needs to understand better what this technology is. A lot of people get stuck just simply on, okay, this is like sort of like a crazy world where um, where where things are growing in a very volatile fashion, etc. And we're, we're trying to demystify that, no? demystify crypto, make sure that people understand that this is significantly different and has advantages, it works, uh, it can be used for other stuff apart from just like the, the crypto price speculation, etc. And when we and when we get customers, we try to explain that to them. No, we try to do that, um, but we still have a long ways to go. I think in order to like be able to fully transmit what we're seeing and what we're trying to build 
And this last, this, this last fundraise that we did is um, a, a significant part of the funds that we raised are, are destined to basically do this better, to grow the product set that we have, to grow the, 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 the value proposition of the platform of this gateway or on-ramp that you're talking about, to basically be able to offer our customers a much wider array of products and services because they are already going through the gateway. No, they're already engaged with the gateway. They trust the gateway. And now we need to like tell them like, look, not only can you like receive crypto payments or make crypto payments, uh, you know, there's all these other stuff that you can do. And so that's exciting. Talk about kind of all this other stuff you can do. And, And one thing that many Mexican consumers have not been able to do is invest for whatever reason. It could be kind of Due to the example you gave, like people think there's excessive fees, they'd rather save or they feel they need to keep things in cash because they might need to use it and they, or they don't trust the investment options or they're getting charged too much. We've seen fractionalization happen in various types of alternative assets, right? Collectibles, equities with like the likes of Robinhood and Stash, um, and even crypto to some extent, right? If you think about it, right? Like you can, you can buy or trade point one Bitcoin or point oh oh one Bitcoin or any other crypto asset. Like how important do you think the and this is really just from the the structural efficiency of crypto itself is like the fractionalization of investments for the institutional investor, how important has that been to enable you to help create that on ramp so that people can kind of access the crypto economy? Yeah, I mean it's been it's been super important. It actually is one of our biggest issues as a company because um, you know a person sees that a Bitcoin is you know close to forty thousand dollars today, and they're like, well, I'm not forty thousand dollars. I can't buy a Bitcoin, and so we have to actually teach them that they can buy fractions of of, of Bitcoin. No, but it's like one of the biggest misconceptions that that people still have that they can't buy a fraction of them, and so. If you look at actually at some of our language, like sometimes we say something to the extent of like, you know, you can invest starting up from 50 pesos. And so then people are like, oh, 50 pesos I have. Like, let, let, let me see what that means or how that works. And they're like, oh, I can buy a fraction of this. Oh, this is kind of cool. Okay. But but it's a big hurdle for some at the beginning. Like we, we, we've spoken to customers, you know, like, oh, we saw that you opened your account, but then you didn't actually do anything. What happens? Like, yeah, well, when I saw that the price of a Bitcoin was, you know, $40,000, I, I, I couldn't justify uh, the expense. You know? Isn't it so funny that psychologically people often think in whole numbers when it comes to investing for, for whatever reason? And they think like, oh, I'd rather buy one entire Litecoin or one one Ethereum token rather than buy half a Bitcoin because you own something in whole numbers, right? It's How do you think about educating people about that? Because different crypto assets may have different values and not all of them are created equal, right? Even if you're only buying a fraction of it. <laughs> this is very funny. My um, A few Christmas ago, my cousin comes to me and gives me a gift and he's never given me a gift ever in his life. And I was like, thank you, but why are you giving me a gift? He's like, oh, I need to thank you because I made so much money investing in crypto that I just wanted, I felt like I wanted to thank you. And I was like, oh, interesting. What did you buy? And he's like, oh, I bought, I bought just the cheapest one. I was seeing the price of Bitcoin and I was like, well, if Bitcoin got here and this thing maybe has a 1% chance of getting there, maybe I should like invest in this thing and, uh, and it appreciates. And I was like, oh my God, no, this is not at all what I was hoping to hear. And so like what, what we're doing now is go to 
uh, eduforeducation.bitso.com, you'll find like an educational portal that we're, that we're building out specifically around this issue of these, these assets have had an, a, a significant appreciation over the last, you know, especially the last year. But, um, but they are risky investments, right? Like the, 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 we just saw last week a big retraction in prices and, uh, and if people bought at the very top, very in the red right now. And so what we're trying to do at Bitso is like, you know, making sure that our customers understand that this is a risky investment. So we try to put like risk disclosures. We try to build education around that. We're trying to make sure that like the customer understands what they're doing, you know, that they're not investing their entire life savings into the cheapest thing that they can find on the platform just because they think like, oh, maybe this one will appreciate like to Bitcoin levels as well. But it's a big responsibility, you know, and, it's, and, and consumer protection is something that we take very seriously and that it's never going to be enough. But we struggle with it because like, you know, um, you look at things like Dogecoin and, and what's happened there. And it's just fascinating, right? Like the appreciation of Dogecoin has been incredible. Um, but really, if you understand sort of like these networks, there's really nothing fundamentally better about Dogecoin than like Bitcoin. Nothing, zero, except for that you have a very, a, a person with a very big megaphone that talks about it and, 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 and then people, you know, um, follow his advice. But, but so it's hard. People ask me like, should we list Dogecoin in Bitso? And it's kind of like a hard answer, right? Because from the one side, it's like, well, you know, maybe crypto is all about like open access. And, and the reality is that if I don't give access to Dogecoin on the platform, someone can very easily like withdraw their crypto from Bitso, send it to a different player that has Dogecoin and buy Dogecoin there. Um, and then from another perspective, it's like, well, but you have people like my cousin who have no idea what this is. And they just think like, I'm just going to invest my life savings here because, you know, Elon Musk is talking about it as the next Bitcoin. And so, and we often wonder sort of like, what is our role as, um, as, as, as this gateway that you're talking about, as this on-ramp, right? Like, do we play, ethically, do we play a role there? And it's, and it's a difficult thing to answer, to be honest, uh, you know, whether to give access or whether to try and, and, and exercise, um, you know, a little bit of more, more caution. It's, it's, a, it's a super interesting debate within Bitso. I mean, I think that's a really interesting tension that you have to grapple with, right? Because many exchanges, even in the equities world, like NASDAQ or NYSE or Deutsche Börse, like, yes, they have some quality control in the sense of what types of companies they um, they list on their on their exchange, but they're not then deciding, you know, what investors should or shouldn't invest into in public markets, investors are choosing, right? So how do you balance that tension to your point of opening up access with bearing the responsibility of, of making sure people, particularly individual retail investors, because there's the brokerage element, the retail brokerage element of this too, that they don't lose money when they're investing into crypto assets, but also balancing the other side of it, which is like, hey, like people should have access to different assets so they can then invest in them and make their own choice. It's a fantastic question. And I would say that it's a question that we continue to like explore at Bitso and we haven't gotten really good at like knowing what should really be the policy. I'll tell you what we think though, or the current thinking. The current thinking is, look, this technology is amazing and it makes it so easy for someone who wants to get access to Dogecoin to get access to Dogecoin. And it doesn't have to be through Bitso. It can be through anybody else. And if our customers are demanding it and if our customers are asking for it, 
you know, and as long as there are some very basic things that these assets comply with, like, for example, we care about security, we care about, well, actually, interestingly, we care about, like, the cybersecurity of the asset itself, you know, do we believe in the in the mechanism that it's employing in order to keep this uh, this currency decentralized, et cetera, et cetera. But then the other one is, do, do like, do we have a regulatory constraint for listing it? Is this thing a security? That's why I sort of backtracked from when I first said security. Is this thing a, a security? And so, like, there's some regulatory stuff that we need to definitely comply with and that we can't skip over. But at the, at the end of the day, we really need to, like, I think, have a much more um, open approach uh, as Bitso. Um, but it's, but it's, a, it's a really difficult conversation. You know? It's a very difficult um, policy. We, and, and, and even without the company, you know, we have, we have you know, employees who go and say, whoa, you're, you shouldn't be paternalistic. Like, that's not our role. Our role is to be a gateway and give access. And then we have folks who are like, well, but like, you know, the reality is that some of our customers are not super financially savvy. And so we already try to, like, get them to understand the risk and grapple with it, etc. Do we want to then offer, like, all of these crazy uh, alternatives? And, 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 and it's a good debate. It's always been a very good debate. I think what's important as we think about listing assets is for us to have that debate, you know, to have that debate amongst our teams and to basically try to be able to come up with a good policy for each thing that we decide to list on the platform. It also sounds like what you're getting at at its core is trust, right? Because not only do you have the ability to trade assets on your exchange, but you have other products that people are using, other financial products, which generally comes down to trust. So how do you think about building a trusted brand for Bitso, much like a Coinbase has done in the U.S. I mean, 56 million customers, you have to build something that's a pretty trusted brand to be able to do something like that. So how do you think about doing that at Bitso? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question. Um, it's, it's also great because we have company meetings every week, and today we had one earlier today, and we have a set of principles that we actually call cryptos. And, uh, and I was chatting with the company about cryptos today because we've had so many new people that you need to keep repeating these messages over and over. <laughs> and the T in cryptos is exactly trusted brand. And it's the importance and the recognition that building trust amongst your customers, amongst regulators, amongst your stakeholders, even your own employees is super important, no? And what that entails. And so we, we think about trust in, in a very sort of holistic manner. No? We don't think there's like this one thing that if you do, you're suddenly trusted. We think that there are a lot of things that you need to do in order to be trusted. And so things that we consider there are, you know, custodianship. Like we've been operating for seven plus years, never lost customer funds, super important. If we don't do custodianship of crypto assets well, we don't have a reason for being. No? And so our track record there speaks for itself. But we need to continue to invest in cybersecurity, which we do, um, in order to make sure that we're like best in kind in, in safekeeping our customers' assets. We think about reliability, about being up, like people need our services 24-7. Last week, several exchanges went down. We were prepared for that sort of load and we didn't go down. Some of the exchanges that went down are much larger than we are, you know. But still, we're very proud that we were able to sort of withstand the load because it was load. All of our systems were like at the edge, you know, everything at the edge, the entire like 
reliability team was like monitoring everything, scaling servers, doing all sorts of crazy stuff, but we were able to go without downtime. Reliability is super, super, super important. No? We talk about, for example, usability. A customer that, that, that can't figure out how to use a product, has a bad experience for whatever reason, that's going to be a detractor. That's going to be someone who's going to speak badly of us. And so we quite the opposite. We need to make super easy, well-functioning products that people love so that they can tell others about, uh, about Bitso. No? And so when we, when we think about trust, we, it's very encompassing. Obviously, like it, it, investors, hugely important, you know, being able to tell folks, you know, we've raised capital from these investors and we're a well-capitalized company and we're very professional, etc. Those are all things that I think like keep pushing this trust story. And so when we think about building trust uh, with our brand, we really think that that it's not one thing, but like a very holistic set of things that you need to do in order to be able to be perceived that way. And also it's something that you need to like keep investing on forever because it takes very little for you to lose a lot of the trust that you've uh, that you've created amongst your customers. You, know? you mentioned that uptime and making sure people can access the exchange, access their crypto assets, their stable coins on your platform. I mean, contrast that with traditional bank branches in, in Mexico. You and I both know that you know oftentimes people are actually physically going to these bank branches to take out cash when they get paid so that they can participate in a cash-based economy. But during COVID, they weren't able to go to the bank branch, right? So do, do you think that because of the way that you're platform is built and the fact that you care so much about reliability, accessibility, do you think that the bar is actually lower to gain trust in a place like Mexico as a financial services provider than it might be in a place like the U.S. where there are a bevy of options when it comes to banks and financial services firms? I think it's fascinating. I think that bar is definitely lower, but I don't think it's lower in crypto because our customers like a lot of our customers don't only engage with Bitso. They engage with many other crypto companies. And so they, they forget very quickly that their bank operates, you know, nine to four or whatever it is. They're like, no, 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 the crypto space opens 24-7. And so, you know, if you, if you have downtime at 1.30 in the morning, we're going to get complaints. Like, you know, even when we do like planned maintenances, it's, it's fascinating. Like we had a planned maintenance and we looked at like what is the least busy period for the for the company, and so we picked like a two-hour slot. We needed to do like a very complex database upgrade, something we'd never done before. Picked a two-hour spot. I think it was like Mexico City time, like three to five a.m. in the morning on a Sunday morning, right? No one should be on the platform. And the minute that we go down, you start getting things on Twitter, right? Hey, what's happening with Bitso? What's happening with Bitso? And we're like, it's it's awesome. No, it's so cool that we have customers that rely on us 24-7, but it just adds to the complexity of what we do as an organization. Well, we hate downtimes, but, um, but, but like we try really hard not to have maintenance windows because the reality is that people rely on us 24-7 and we want to be there for them 24-7. And if the guy who tweeted us was someone who was like, you know, wanting to pay a friend after, you know, eating pizza or if it's, uh, you know, an emergency or whatever, like our role is to be there for them whenever they need us, whether it's at three at 4 a.m. in the morning or at 1 p.m. on a Thursday afternoon, like we need to be there. And so what we have found is that, yes, initially the 
the bar is lower. Like new customers come to us and they're like, oh, it's kind of cool that I can operate 24 seven. But very quickly, they're just like, the minute you go down, they're like, whoa, 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 what's happening? You're supposed to be at 24 seven place. So it's kind of like both, both things. Well, that would indicate that you have super fans or really engaged users, which is not always the case in financial services. But I actually want to go back to something you said earlier, which is related to this. And it's related to the fact that crypto in many respects is a religion to some people. So you talked about kind of growing up in a kind of semi-religious background. And, you know, there are many people in crypto. I think Jeff Lewis actually tweeted this a little while ago saying, like, Bitcoin is the first uh, financial asset to be a religion. So how do you think about the importance of community within crypto and how have you seen that transpire as you've built Bitso and kind of what the the religiosity of of this asset class means to people and and maybe that's why at three in the morning they're mad that you have a downtime (laughs) i think the crypto community is both the most fascinating and also the most crazy community that exists um it's I think Bitcoin is definitely a religion. Um, and, and we've talked uh, within the company a lot about sort of like the difference between a cult and a religion. And, um, and, and like the best definition that we have found about like the distinction between one of them uh, is that like religions survive their founders, whereas cults usually don't. And so like, I think it's safe to say now that Bitcoin is sort of like, you know, completely... Well, I want to think that Bitcoin has sort of survived its founder. No, we, no one knows who the Bitcoin founder is, uh, or you know, or where where he, they, she are, etc. The, the amazing thing about the crypto community is that people are really eager to tell you about crypto, and so if you're curious about crypto and you tweet at almost anyone in the crypto industry. Um, like people will probably answer you. People will probably engage with you because there's just this fanatism to prove that this is an alternative that might work in the future, no? Or that, or, or that it, you know, that might become bigger, uh, whatever you want to call it. And so that's fascinating about the crypto industry, right? Like I wanted to speak to like people who were, you know, in the very early days. I remember, like, I reached out to these people that I thought were like. The, the, the Bitcoin eminences, no? And they would reply and engage and talk and, and meet. And that was fascinating. That's, I think, one of the biggest, like, pros of the space. But the, the, the issue is that also people are very set on their beliefs. And we've seen, you know, different branches when, when the beliefs break. And at the times, like, it stops being sort of academic and, uh, and it just becomes kind of crazy. So, so in between 2016, our biggest source of growth were young adults, young Mexican adults that wanted to buy video games off of Steam. The growth that we were seeing there, paying with Bitcoin, the growth that we were seeing there was such that one of our investors was telling us like, why don't you abandon this whole Bitcoin thing and you just focus on like becoming a payment processor for like Steam or video game providers. And um, it was just very stark, like the, the amount of traction that we were getting there. And these were all like young Mexican adults without credit cards 
who would go to like their local uh, convenience store because we have like a, a partnership that allows us to uh, for people to like go with cash and turn it into into like pesos on the app and then they can convert that into Bitcoin or crypto or whatever. And so we were basically like seeing all this growth. And then in 2017, the space of the Bitcoin block started to get full and transaction costs started to rise. And, and we were like sort of bummed because we were seeing that as transaction costs increased on the Bitcoin network, our customers stopped using us for video game credit top-ups on Steam. And it was like perfectly, you know, inversely correlated fees and traction. And so it was kind of painful for us. You know, the, the, a group of people that were very concerned about this got together and formed a, like formed something called Segwit2x, which is basically like an attempt to like duplicate the block space just quickly while we figure out like what were the long-term solutions to the block size debate that had been ongoing for a while. Oh my God, I started getting death threats for having like subscribed to, to this uh, proposal, which was nothing but a proposal. We were basically saying like, hey, we're worried as an industry about these things and we would like for it to be like, to, to, for us to make this compromise on the short term. Blah, blah. And it was just crazy. It was like, and, and there's good reasons why it was crazy. And it, actually, if you look into the history, you know, after, after everything evolved, et cetera, I actually wrote a, a, a long email to the community and told them like, I think we probably should pull out of the SegWit2x uh, consortium or whatever you want to call it for whatever reason. But it was just crazy. Like it was, no one wanted to hear why, why we wanted to support SegWit2x. No one was interested. No one cared. It was all about like, this is not Satoshi's vision or whatever. And we're going to, to tell this guy that he can go himself because he doesn't know what he's talking about. And it was kind of frustrating and alienating a little bit as well. Like, I kind of wish you could have told the story and that people would have listened and understood like, oh, wow, there's like actual utility from Bitcoin in places in the world where we're not seeing, um, you know, and, and, and there's this other perspective that my own uh, experiences have not provided me with. And maybe I want to like think, uh, just consider this. It was it was like no one was interested in understanding why. Every it was just like it was just super hardcore. But it's kind of like what makes Bitcoin what it is. It's like it's hard to change. It's immutable. It's uh, it's interesting. And 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 Bitcoin itself is highly academic. Just the community around it can sometimes be. Do you think an experience like that has given you more empathy for building community within? your customer base in the business than, than another business may have been? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. Like we we're big on building community and a lot of it is uh, we want our customers to understand what this is all about, how they can benefit from it. What are the challenges? What are the risks? And, and for them to be for each other as well, because the, this movement is larger than any one company can never be. And so it's, it's sort of like, fascinating and and you need that space where people are talking to each other and building with each other. No? On that point, how do you think about balancing being somewhat of a centralized company in a decentralized world that you're building for? Yeah, this is this is something that um, that we talk often. We, we believe that if, if we end up being successful, like really successful, then 
the, the way in which Bitso exists needs to change radically. If we really are successful in getting people to live in a fully decentralized world where money is decentralized, where you know there's no the, everyone's self-custodying and we figure out how to do that safely everywhere in the world, etc. Like if we're if we're very successful as a company, as an industry, then like the value proposition of something like Bitson needs to change a lot. And and interestingly, like we think a lot about community in that regard, because we're sort of like in a situation where we're like the rate of innovation of the space is so fast that um, that that it's impossible for us to just keep up with everything. And maybe community is sort of like the answer. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think community is so critical to building a trusted business to building a, and particularly in financial services, right? When you think about what traditional financial services firms have done or lack thereof when it's come to building community, it seems like you can have a massive advantage from actually building community and engaging with that community in a different way, which it sounds like you do. Um, So I want to touch on kind of two other pieces of, of what's recently happened as you expand your community, both internally with your team and your investor base as you've raised a large round, uh, recently closed a $250 million round led by Tiger. Uh, so congratulations on that. Uh, but, but also expanding your community externally with your customers as you're now going into other large countries in the region like Brazil. So you know, tell, tell us a little bit about why you decided to raise this round, what it means to expand into Brazil as part of this recent fundraising, because culturally, Mexico and Brazil are, are somewhat different, but also both very big yet underserved markets and financial services. Absolutely. So I think there were several impetus to raise this round. Um, the first one is that when we were sitting and trying to figure out really aggressive path for growth, we realized that we needed more capital. Like the company was already sort of like it was generating uh, revenue. It was, you know, we were profitable, etc. But we we're like, we need to keep investing. And this is sort of like a race against everybody else that's trying to build these things. And so, like, how do we build faster? And capital is one of those things that allows you to build faster and deploy faster and, like, be more aggressive. And so that was one. The second one is that when we when we were thinking, like, we expanded into Argentina, but we expanded into Argentina mainly with a Mexican team. Now we've added uh, a, a much larger uh, Argentine DNA to the company, but we were able to like expand into Argentina reasonably okay with uh, with the team uh, mostly in Mexico, and we realized that that was not going to be the case in Brazil. And so in Brazil we are building like we're trying to build all the DNA in Brazil. In fact, I'm relocating to Brazil, and like we want to basically build with Brazilian DNA. In order to do that, you could we couldn't take the approach of like, oh, well, let's launch from Mexico and then like slowly get better, slowly, etc. No, we're like, no, when we launch, this product needs to feel Brazilian. It needs to be perfectly Brazilian. And so in order to do that, you need to do like a larger, uh, a larger upfront investment. And so the round comes at a time when the crypto industry has its cycles and you never know when you are on the on, on the top of the cycle, on the middle, on the bottom, it's really these the cycles are very difficult to time. You know, a lot of people ask me after last week's crash, like, "Oh, um, you know, are we already in a crypto winter?" I have no idea, and I, I, I really try to not think about that. 
But raising capital when you are not in those periods is very important because it's what allows you to continue to invest and build while these, um, you know, while these crypto winters happen. Now, a lot of people are saying there's not going to be a crypto winter anymore. We're on a super cycle. I don't know. No, but we've, we've seen these things in the past at Bitso. And it just seemed like, you know, we are up against this enormous country that we're going to have to build a lot of like country DNA. We are, it's a big bet. There's already established players and we're going to have to compete against them. There's, um, you know, it's it's at a good moment in the crypto cycle. You know, Coinbase was IPOing, prices were at an all-time high, etc. And we just felt like, you know, and, and there was a lot of interest. And so everything sort of aligned perfectly. And we're super excited about this because I think, you know, really allow us to build something very meaningful. And that's that's very exciting for us. Well, that's exactly what you want to do is you want to make crypto useful, which which you've done. Um, so I always end the podcast by asking everyone what their favorite or most interesting alternative investment is. Uh, maybe it was your cousin's uh, your, your cousin's <laughs> alternative investment, uh, which which seemed to have yielded well. But would love to hear would love to hear from you what what your favorite or most interesting alt investment is. Yeah. So you so I was thinking about this question because you sent it be- before and um and i wanted to i wanted to tell you what i really think is my fa- my favorite alt investment and unfortunately it's not an asset or an asset that you know i can recommend to to your audience but my favorite alt investment is to spend time in the DeFi world i really think that like understanding what's getting built on the DeFi world is so unique and so fascinating that if you spend some time looking at these protocols that are getting built out, you, you, you're going to get, like, you're going to basically come to the realization that, like, financial services are being deconstructed and built with this new paradigm on top of crypto. And my favorite alt investment, and it's what I try to do on the weekends, is basically, like, just go deeper into the DeFi world, spend my time, invest my time understanding this technology and understanding and thinking, how do I, as the CEO of a crypto company that plays on the CeFi or on the, on the centralized finance world, is going to come to terms with this crazy innovation and world of the, of the, DeFi, of the DeFi world. And so... That, that that would be my that that would be my response to my favorite alt investment. What's your fu- what's your vision for the future of what financial services look like given that you understand DeFi, you see how things are kind of heading in that direction? Yeah, I, I actually have a, a fee a theory that in the future, building on DeFi or building on blockchain or whatever you want to call it is not going to be even like a a hot thing to do. It's what's going to be required of by regulators. Like, I feel like once people understand the transparency, the auditability, the traceability of of just this new paradigm, you're going to realize that a lot of the stuff, a lot of the regulation that we've built on top of financial services are a result of people like breaking their customers' trust and not thinking about consumer protection. And a lot of the regulation is like, how do I audit this? How do I, how do I verify this? How do I check this? How do I control this? Blah, 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 blah. And once you start looking at the DeFi world and you kind of realize like, this is kind of crazy. You can get away with a bunch of those stuff. 
comes with cyber risk, which I think is one of the things that like we're starting to get better at solving on 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 DeFi, and it's still I think a very big challenge. But I just I'm just like fascinated by 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 DeFi because I really believe that the future of financial services is one where these products and services are built on top of public decentralized networks and where the source code is open and accessible to the world. And you will understand exactly if I put my money in a savings account, how is it collateralized? How is that collateralized going to get called in the case that I need, the, the, you know, that, that, the, that the person I lent the money to doesn't pay back? How, like, all of these questions. And, um, and, and one of the things that I find fascinating is, like, you know, we already have asset, like, we already have a bunch of stuff built on DeFi that depends on the value of assets. And last week we had these like big collapsing prices and we saw a lot of assets getting called, like a lot of collateral getting called on the DeFi space. And it's fascinating just how well it worked. Like just how well the, the, the systems work. Uh, DAI, which is like uh, one of, a currency that keeps its it's parity against the U.S. dollar using a mechanism of incentives, like worked perfectly well. It maintained its parity. Um, you know, Compound, the protocol for borrowing and lending, behaved perfectly. Like, it's just fascinating to, to, to see these things like working in real life. And they're no longer like, you know, people thinking in their basement, like, oh, we're going to build like uh, this product on a decentralized network. No, these, these things exist. And there's like, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, if not, you know, in some of protocols, there's even billions of dollars locked in. And it's, uh, it's real, it's real and it's happening and it's happening really fast. And like, I feel like unless you're spending your time looking at everything that's been developed on this space, you're really missing out. I think we're going to have to do a whole separate podcast on DeFi. And what's going on there? Because I, mean, I think what you're getting at is that there's a sea change coming in financial services. And it sounds like step one is investing the time to learn about it. But I guess what, what would you, what advice, as some final parting words, what advice would you give to people so that they can understand and wrap their heads around all the innovation that's happening in DeFi? There, there's a lot of really good media outlets in crypto today. Um, uh, one that I quite like is The Block. Um, and, you know, there's Coindesk, there's various others, but you, the, the Block is, I think, a phenomenal outlet and they're covering DeFi day in and day out. And, uh, and just, you know, either get a subscription or, or, or log in and, and, and read about it. But I think just like, just read about what's happening in the space on a constant, regular basis. And, uh, and you'll see that there's just so much really fun, interesting stuff getting built out. That's that those are wise words. And I think we'd all be doing well to learn about DeFi because of all the innovation that's happening in this space. So, and, and thank you for sharing all of your thoughts on the crypto economy, what you're building at Bitso, which is not only critical for the crypto space, but also critical when you think about financial inclusion and building the rails that really connect the traditional financial services world and consumers with the crypto world uh, and enabling them to access financial services in ways they haven't. So thank you for everything you're doing. And thanks for coming on the Alco's Mainstream Podcast, Daniel. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. A pleasure chatting with you. And I hope we get to do this soon. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Alt Goes Mainstream. I hope you enjoyed it. You can find more episodes of the podcast at any of your favorite podcast sites, and you can read more about alts at my Substack, altgoesmainstream.substack.com, and follow me on Twitter at, at Michael Stigmore and at GoesAlt. Thanks a lot, and have a great day. We're going